0: Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show.
1: So today's, today's topic is, I'm calling this Introduction to Pottery Kilns. And this is actually the third part of a three-part series that we've been doing. I wanted to do a series talking about all the different kinds of kilns. So we started two months ago with having, a, we talked about wood firing kilns and, and incident and coal attached to that. And then we did a, a session on gas firing. And so this one's gonna be an electric kiln. I haven't decided what we're gonna do next month, but it may be something related to issues that are related to firing, like firing problems because when you fire kilns, there are, there are issues that you have with actually operation of the kiln. Some of them show up in the work and could cause problems with the work. Others don't really affect the work directly, they just are problems with operating the kiln. So I thought I might do a topic on that next month uh, where we talk about problems, problems in operating the kilns and, pro- and things that actually show up as defects or, or problems with the work themselves. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that All of these three discussions have been really attempt to be an overview, because I I realize that not everybody has the same background in ceramics, and some people, for instance, have never fired a gas kiln or worked with a gas kiln or wood firing. So it was meant to be an overview, kind of an introduction, so that if you wanted to learn a little bit more about you, the know, uS this maybe would give you a little information on the different firing techniques. Um, but so this, and today, this is still going to be somewhat of an overview. But if you have you know, very specific questions, please ask them. I mean, I, we love questions. So and one of, the, one of the purposes, I think, of a lot of these, these sessions that we try to have is to solve problems. I mean, to me, that's the whole reason for doing all this technical stuff, is that aside from just the intellectual part of it, it's kind of fun to know what's going on. But a lot of it is, a lot of the problems that are associated with pottery um, have to have a technical basis. And so if you understand a little bit of the chemistry, a little bit of the mechanisms that are going on, you can solve the problems. So to me, that's really what the, tech, the, the importance of the technical part is. If you know some of this information, it frees you to be creative. You're not constantly tripping over the fact that your pots are blowing up, or the glazes are always running, and you can focus on the creative aspects and not worry so much about the mechanics of the process. So to me, that's the real value of a lot of, the, a lot of this technical background information. So to get started, I guess basically, just by way of review, what is a kiln, basically, even? How do you define a kiln? Well, a kiln is basically an enclosed space for heating, if you want a definition. And, and you might say, well, why do we need kilns? Well, For one thing, one of the big things that that you need a kiln for is control. By having an enclosed space, you're able to control what's going on within the space, ideally. That's the goal. And also, you need the enclosed space to achieve high temperatures. When we talked earlier about when we did the wood firing session, we talked about some of the really primitive kilns that, that were all the way from just a bonfire to really rudimentary enclosures. They have very poor temperature control. A lot of too many things that we, you know, wind blowing over it and the weather can affect it. So they had poor control, but they also couldn't achieve high temperatures. So it's really for those two purposes. It gives you, it gives you control, which, is, which you need for reproducibility. And it also gives you, uh, it, it enables you to reach high temperatures. So but but as I say, as we go along, if you have any questions, please, you know, please just interrupt me with the questions and they can be on anything. You know, the meaning of life. How do you fix your 72 Volkswagen? I don't care. I mean, I know the answer, but we can talk about it. OK. OK, so just a little bit of history. You know, when you think about it, electric kilns really haven't been around that much at all. I mean, in the 1920s. A big part of the United States didn't even have electricity in terms of, you know, people's homes. Electricity only became common in people's houses in the 1920s and 1930s. There was a huge proportion of the population that didn't have anything. So electric kilns really only started to become useful and popular and common really in the 1950s and 60s in terms of, you know, what we would call hobby kilns or, you know, kilns for for like ceramists or studio artists. Industry had been using them before then, but they were still pretty rudimentary. And one of the things that made electric kilns when they first started appearing practical was better insulation. Because the the traditional bricks that you build kilns out of for wood firing or gas firing or coal, all the traditional bricks, were these hard, dense bricks. And... They're, ter- they're, they're strong, but they're terrible insulators. And I'll pass these around just for comparison. This is a typical sort of traditional dense or hard fire brick. And it's heavy, and it's strong, and it's durable, but it's a terrible insulator. And so one of the innovations that made electric kilns a lot more practical was when they started developing better insulation. Also, there's a, there's a general principle with kilns that the, more, the smaller the kiln is, the less efficient it is because the smaller it is, the more heat it's going to lose, and the more energy you have to put into it to keep it to get hot, it loses heat faster. So bigger kilns actually retain heat longer. So I'll pass these you can just, these are about the same size, and you can feel the difference in the weight. So this is, this is an insulating kind of fire brick, it's called IFB, insulating fire brick, and it's lightweight, it's not very strong mechanically, but, it's, but it's, it's a pretty good insulator compared to the, the normal fire bricks. So and you can just see the difference in the weight. And so one of the things this enabled us with a with better insulation came along was now we can make kilns that are portable. They don't become, they're not these monstrously heavy things. We can actually make things that can even in, you know, in an industrial setting, they can be moved around if they have to or it led to the, the forms that we have today where you can literally, you know, you break them down in sections and you can pick them up and move them. Well, it wouldn't have been possible without this, without this lighter weight of brick. But there were, other, there were there other forms of insulation that also were developed. There was an early form of, of sort of fiberglass informa- in, insulation called rock wool that was actually used in houses. Well, and it was, it was sort of a dirty, fuzzy kind of ceramic fiber and it was actually spun from slag. They took slag from the steelmaking industry and it was spun into fibers. And it was sort of nasty, dirty stuff, but it still was pretty good insulation. It was like an insulating blanket. And so that was another kind that they developed. And then the more modern version, I'm going to pass this around just so you can see it. I don't know whether you've all seen Kaowool or insulating fiber blanket. This is just a sample of it, but this is really lightweight insulation. We don't use this kind so much in electric kilns that we use because it's not really sturdy. You You can't build a kiln out of it. You can line a kiln with it. And so industry uses this a lot. It's really good insulation, really lightweight, and of course makes it, you know, it, very portable, but it's not suitable for the kind of kilns that we use, just because it's not very strong. What's that? This is called, it, it's, it's ceramic fiber, basically, a fiber blanket. So anyway, so the, the, one of the things that enabled these smaller kilns to be built and the portable kilns that we know today is the fact that they're, um, they're, they're you know, they're better insulation. Um, Okay, um, the other thing is, the, the, the first really, I, if I want to call them non-industrial or hobby kilns, appeared, they really, they appeared kind of in the 1950s and they didn't even really get going until the 1960s. And these are really simple designs. So you can see these, the kind of kilns we're using today have not been around that long at all. Um, and then more recently they've, they've developed larger kilns, more, more di- different designs have become available. Um, we have kilns now with more sophisticated features like electronic controls, which they never used to have. And we've, and we've, gotten, we've continued to evolve better materials. So now we have kilns, for instance, where the, the, the actual materials that the elements are made out of are much better than what they originally were made. We'll talk a little bit more about this. So the, the overall construction and even materials in the kilns have gotten a lot better. So a little bit of background. So when you're, when you're heating with electricity, Basically, what you're, doing is, what you're doing is called resistance heating. And what this means is when you pass an electrical current through some material, some metal, and unless it's a really great conductor of electricity, it resists the passage of electricity. And so when you try to pass the electricity through it, the electricity, it doesn't want the electricity to go through it. And the result is the material gets hot. So a lot of times, we, um, we don't want that. And certainly, like, you don't want the wires in the walls of your house to get hot when you pass electricity through them. So we use, we use materials that conduct electricity really well, like copper. But for, for, for a heating element, we purposely pick a material, a metal, that does not conduct electricity really, really well. It, it, it gets hot. So actually, what in some situations would be a defect, we're actually taking advantage of that here to heat up our kilns. We pass some electricity through a wire, and the wire resists it and gets hot. The electricity still goes through it, but it gets hot in the process. And then we use that to heat our kilns. And just in case you haven't seen one close up, or you haven't handled one, this is a brand new element. And they basically just, they're at, when they're, before they're used, they're just they're sort of springy. We'll talk about the shape later. But they're just basically you know sort of metal, metal wire, in this case, wound into a coil. Um, so the, heat, so the heating elements get hot when you pass, through the, 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 elect, when you pass the electricity through. And the elements are the, and, and all the electric kilns that we're familiar with, these coils of the wires, run along the walls of the kiln. They have to be supported, so they run along the inside walls of the kiln. One of the reasons why the, co- the you know, you might say, well, if they're wires, why are they coiled up like this? Well, for a couple of reasons. It could be just a straight wire. But one of the reasons is that it takes up less space because in order to get a certain amount of heat, you need a certain, amount, a certain length of wire to generate the heat that you want. And so in order to fit that amount of wire into the kiln, they coil it up to take up less space. It could, there's no reason why it couldn't, be run, it couldn't be straight and you could run it 37 times around the kiln, but it, it takes up less space and it's easier if you just run it into coils. That way you have the total length of the wire that you need but also, by coiling it, you concentrate the heat. By having more of the wire close together, in each little area, more heat is given off rather than if the wire was straight and strung out over a longer area.
2: Bill, so is it important what metal?
1: We're going okay. That's, and so the two metals that are used, <laughs> yes, there, there are two common types of element of, of metals. One is called nichrome, N-I-C-H-R-O-M-E, <laughs> I feel like I'm writing with a telephone pole here. Nichrome. And this is the old, this was the original form of heating element wire. And it's, it was patented actually in 1905. This, this, this metal combination. And it's a combination of iron, nickel and chromium. It's an alloy, but it's, and it's really cheap. So it was a great invention when they discovered. And of course, if you think about it, if I'm going to make a heating element, it has to be something that can get hot, but won't melt. Because a lot of metals, if I got them as hot as the kiln, as hot as the kiln is, the wire the, the, the would melt. So I have to get something that will resist electricity, but also not melt, so they can still be there to give off the heat. And this was one of them, nichrome. Um, it's limited to about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly, in terms of use. And you can take them to higher temperatures, but then the life, they burn out, basically. The lifetime decreases a lot. So when, when electric kilns were first produced, Nobody was going to contend with an electric kiln. They were all ma- really doing mostly earthenware, low fire, low fire ceramics. So these were fined for that. Um, but then, and they're still used in low temperature kilns because they're really inexpensive, um, they're, they're, they're cheap to replace, they're, 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 they're great, they're just, they're limited. There's a, there, then there was a whole family of new kinds of metals developed called canthal, Kanthal, K-A-N-T-H-A-L, this is a company name or brand name, kind of like Kleenex or Scotch Tape, Canthol is their company's name. These are introduced in the 1930s, and these are a different kind of alloy. These are ion aluminum and chromium, if you're interested. Um, and the, the, the advantage that they have, these have several big advantages. They can go to a lot higher temperatures. They don't burn out, which means they don't burn out as easily, but also When you fire these, the the metal in the the wire actually develops a coating of aluminum oxide that protects it from fumes and acids and things in the kiln. So when when you use the element, it actually develops its own protective coating, which the, the nichrome doesn't. So and as you're probably aware, when you fire any kiln, there are fumes coming off in the kiln, coming off from the clay, like when you're bisque firing or even when you're glaze firing. And some of those fumes are extremely acid and they can actually eat up, the, they, they, can, they attack the metal. So they can t- easily attack a nichrome wire. These are pretty good, pretty resistant to that because they built up this protective coating. So these, not, now they're a lot more expensive, but it's a considerable advantage in terms of lifetime and resistance to these fumes and wear and tear compared to the old nichrome. And they go to a lot higher temperatures, so you can go to 10, 11, 12 with these things.
3: If you were to rewire your kiln with one of these, would you recommend then like firing it up empty without putting...
1: You're absolutely it supposed to, not just me recommending it, you're supposed to do that. Yeah. Before... if you If you put in new elements... What you're supposed to do is, before you expose the elements to the fumes from the clay, you're supposed to do a, a, an empty run with the kiln. You can put shelves in, but it doesn't matter. But basically, you want to preheat the elements. So you do a bisque firing, essentially, with nothing in the kiln. And when you do that, it builds up this oxide coating, and it'll extend the life of the elements. So it's a good point. It's, yeah, yeah, they actually rec- they really recommend that.
2: Uh, if you were to, like, say, replace your, you know, your uh, elements with the, the canthal, would, would you see a difference in like your segments, like the heating times in, in your segments, because like
1: they heat at a different rate, like the canthal versus the nichrome? Um, I'm not aware of any, personally, I'm just, I'm not aware of any kilns where we replaced uh, nichrome with canthal, because um, usually like if you have a kiln, let's say that's, that's capable of going to cone 10 like a lot of kilns are, it, would, it wouldn't come with nichrome in it. Most of, most of the, almost all the kilns now know, unless you buy one of these small tabletop kilns that are used for like jewelry making or enameling, or it's specifically an earthenware kiln, like limited to, you know, earthenware rain, low fire, they, all, they almost all come with canthal. And I, and the answer to, you, but the answer to your question is, I was evading your answer. Um, the, an, the answer to your question is, yeah, it might change the characteristics a little bit. It might. That was one of the issues I think we had at the middle school. Is
2: as the coils were getting older, the elements were getting older, it was taking a long time to reach temperature, and after they replaced some of the elements, then it was firing at the
1: appropriate time. And that's, but that's, that's, a, that's a common characteristic of all elements. As the elements, this is one of the symptoms of, of elements aging, is that the kiln takes longer and longer, and that, that's, that doesn't matter whether it's nichrome or canthol, as the elements get age the resistance of the element increases so with the same power going through it doesn't get as hot and it takes longer to get hot so that's that's a common yeah, that's one of the common signs that your elements are aging yeah yeah
3: what causes aging is it firing or is it time
1: no it's just it's firing it's temperature and the, so the resistance of the the elements one of the things that happens is as since since they're being fired in air a lot of the chain, like if I'm looking, this is the cross-section of the wire. The air is, is hitting the wire from the outside, and so the, the air is getting, is attacking the wire, basically. So the part of the wire that can still conduct electricity in the inside of the wire gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you get these oxides and deposits built up on the outside. So as the, So the core of the wire that can still conduct the electricity gets smaller and smaller, and as it does, the resistance increases. Is that why
3: they tell you to change all the elements at once if you have... Even if you just have one
1: go, do you, do you change all of them? Well, it depends change? on how old the rest of the elements are. If, if the rest of the elements have, have a fair amount of age on them, and let's say an element goes, and I, and I say, you know, this is probably the first of all the elements, you know, they're, they're getting to the point where they're all going to start to go, but this is the first one, then I replace them all. If something goes accidentally where I, th- I still think I have a lot of lifetime, but maybe something breaks or I get a short for some reason, then I just replace the one. Yeah,
3: because I was. Happy problem with just one particular one. It was like the couple in that section, and the wire, you know, it was like everything, yeah. it was like in a certain section, but everything else, and it wasn't that old.
1: You yeah. know what I mean? No, it's, it's not like a solar. problem. You can replace, if, there, if there's still a fair amount of lifetime, then I only replace the one. Now,
3: if you just do the one, do you still run this fire ahead of time?
1: Oh yeah, time? yeah, you still want to break in, because the point is, if you don't, if you start using that element, and you haven't built up that, that protective layer, then it'll get attacked now it's not going to burn it out, but it it will it can shorten the life. So to get the maximum lifetime out of it, if you can, or if you know, if you can do, or if you you know, do a bisque or something where you you build up that protective layer, then you'll extend the life. You'll get the maximum lifetime of the elements. Okay, yeah. So
2: I've also heard like you know, if you're like rushing the <coughs> load and you put green greenware in that's like slightly wet, and then you like candle it first, it, that 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 can affect your lifetime of your elements, and then. Also, sometimes I do fire with, like, cardboard, you know, armatures mm-hmm. and different things in there, and I heard that that can affect the office. Yeah, it
1: can but attack, actually. them. but this is one of the, it, especially, especially in nichrome. But this is one of the advantages of the Canthal, is that if you build up a protective coating on the wires, then they're much less sensitive to the water coming off or to the, to the carbon and the fumes coming off from burning it, much less. You still don't want, the, you know, they still... They still said that you shouldn't, you, you don't wanna to try to do a reduction in an electric kiln, like like put a lot of combustibles in there. Because even with the even with the this protective coating, when the coating expands and contracts and cools down, it still has cracks in it. So it's not totally impervious. So if you overload the kiln constantly with a lot of by burning things in it, yeah, you you're still gonna shorten the life of the elements. You're still gonna do it. But because again, the coating isn't absolutely perfect. It has cracks and little defects in it where, where fumes can still get into it. But it's, it's still a lot better than no coating. But yeah, so, but occasional, I'd say, you know what also helps? And do you have a downdraft fan on your kiln? Yes. Okay, because we'll talk more about this later also. But if you have the, the kind of fan now that you can mount on a kiln where it draws air in at the top and, and withdraws them, that really extends the life of your elements because now you're pulling those fumes out of the kiln. And they're not—they're not sitting there just, you know, cooking on your elements. Yeah. Uh,
2: the, when instructions say that you have to leave a little bit open for at least a couple hours, is that
3: uh, helping
1: to? This is on the lid of the yes, top of the. kiln? Well, do you have a on your kiln or well, you, you're you're getting a kiln, right?
3: Yeah, I have this kiln, like small kiln. Okay, but pursue. if you
1: if you have one of these downdraft fans that I'm talking about, do you know the, what, what I'm referring to with these fans? Okay, well we'll talk about. If you have one of those, you don't need to leave the lid open, you're because not supposed to, right? no, you're not supposed to. Yeah. But the but if you don't have to have one of those 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 fans. But the idea is there are two things you want to do. You want to get the fumes out of the kiln, <clears throat> excuse me, and then you want to get the the fumes out of the room. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about these downdraft fans are is they do both. They pull the fumes out of the kiln and pass them outside, whereas. Whereas you're right, though, to get them out of the kiln, you can leave the lid a little bit and also leave the plugs and the peepholes open. And you do both. And and so typically, you might leave those, like when I was doing bisque firings in an old kiln, I'd prop the, I'd have, I had a kiln that went like low, medium, high. So on low, I'd have the lid propped up for an inch or so, and I'd have all the plugs out. And then on medium, I'd put the lid down, but I still had all the plugs out. And then when I turned it to high, I had the two bottom plugs in and the top one still out for bisque firing so that the fumes could get out. And that'll extend not just the life of your elements; that extends the life of the bricks of the kilns. The, the fumes that come out of the clay actually attack the bricks on the kiln. And if you've ever seen a really old kiln, and the weird thing is they attack the bricks from the outside in, the bricks that are next, that's because the fumes that come out of the kiln it's basically, it's sulfur oxides. And when they hit the moisture in the air, they form sulfuric acid. So the fumes come out, work their way through the bricks, and when they get to the outside of the bricks where the air is with the moisture, it forms an acid. So they actually attack the bricks from the outside in.
3: Is that why you sometimes see like that corrosion on top of like your digital controller?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's all the stuff coming out of the, yeah. And, and you see it around the, the joints and you see it on the hinges. Yeah, or oh, the handle that hangs over a peephole. Yeah, that's all because it's sulfur. It's battery acid. It's the same acid that's in your car battery. It's a really strong acid, which is also why, if you've ever smelled that the smell of a bisque fire in particular, it's that kind of acrid, almost metallic smell, and a kind of it, you, know, you can feel it in the back of your throat and your nose. It's it's battery acid.
3: Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
3: What Potter's are weird. You like to put nails into clay. Why would anybody
1: want to do that, Jane? Because it's cool. <laughs> no, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> um,
3: does that also affect the wires and the bricks
1: Not that much. Oh, really? Not that much. I mean, if you, had a, if you did a kiln load of, of metal parts in there, yeah, you might produce some, some, ask some fumes or something that could attack it, but a little bit occasionally. Especially, these, the, the downdraft fans have really eliminated a lot of the wear and tear on elements. Because they don't let the fumes just kind of sit in there. So, are we talking steel, ferrous uh, metals, or aluminum? Or? It's going to be well. It's going to be mostly something where you might get some actually vaporization. So, like copper, something like that, where you might get a little something vaporizing. Steel, probably not. You're just going to oxidize it. Okay. And, and iron, you're just going to oxidize it. You're going Can to sit that it.
2: Might harm the wires in the
1: n- Not significant. And I wouldn't say significant unless you put, you know, you had the whole thing filled up with stuff made out of copper. I'd say no. Okay. It's not going to. It's not. That's not an issue really. It's not an issue. Yeah?
3: What else uh, can make your, your kiln tell you that it's firing too slowly besides number of firings?
1: You mean what can cause it to, to, to do that? Or, yeah. Or...
3: I have a, a, a kiln that doesn't get fired very often. Mm-hmm. And it, the last time I fired it, toward the end, it had this code, error code
1: on it that said it was firing too slow. Does it have a, is it a manual control kiln or is it electronic? Electronic. Um, It could be the thermocouple also, because the thermocouple has to be replaced, because if you have an, we'll talk more about this, but if you have an electronic controller, that operates by means of a temperature measurement device called the thermocouple. And the thermocouple ages similar to the way the elements can age. So if the thermocouple isn't reading correctly, the elements may be working fine. And so but in order to the controller is based entirely on what the thermocouple is telling it the temperature is and if it's not reading properly It could also be the thermocouple Now the other thing it can be also sometimes it depending on how big your kiln is it could be that one of your elements isn't working at all Excuse me. So it might not be that the the elements are, are heating up slowly It could be that one or more of them isn't working at all in which case You're not getting enough heat in the kiln and the kiln will heat up slowly So one of the other things to check, if you say, well, gee, my elements aren't that old, then one of the things to check is, are all the elements in fact heating up? Because there's nothing that says that occasionally, I've seen new elements occasionally burn out, there could be a little defect in the wire, it's rare, but it can happen or something can happen where the element burns out or it's not operating. So the other thing to check is, are all the elements functioning? Are they just getting hot? And if they are, if they're getting hot, then you say, okay, then maybe they're getting hot too slowly
3: that the instruction manual said to do in that it, it
1: was to vacuum it. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about more about this later, but I'll, I'll just mention that. Yeah, you, something you want to do is you want to vacuum, at least once a year, I'd say, you want to vacuum out the element grooves. So you take, if you take a vacuum cleaner, you know they have those soft sort of little, little round brushes that you can like brush Venetian blinds and things with? Is run that along the inside of each groove and, and, and suck the dust out of the grooves because... The dust that accumulates in the grooves, if it gets between the coils and the wire, it can actually produce a short. And you can actually shorten the life. And so occasionally you'll see an element where the element will arc and it'll burn out. And some of that is accumulating like this debris that accumulates in the coil. And this is especially important if you ever do a bisque firing and the bisque wire blows up and, you know, blows shards all over the kiln. When that happens, you should definitely vacuum out the sh- because you've probably blown little pieces of ceramic into the grooves where the elements are. And so you can you really... vacuum
2: sh- after every biz fire?
1: No, no, only vacuum when you blows up. But in <laughs> yeah. your case, yeah, 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 yeah. I would say, that, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, every one then, Dennis, yeah. If you
3: don't have it long enough, what, what kind of frequency should I do? I do
1: at least once a year, I'd say, at least. Just, okay. I, at least once a year. And I, I do it, or every six months. I mean, that... that the, the one thing, you know, we'll talk about it later, but there, there's so little maintenance on an electric kiln, and it takes 10 minutes to vacuum out the, the thing, so it's worth it. Well, and sometimes I, get, I do it more than that. Yeah.
3: But, you know, like yeah. you said, I had one arc, and thank God it was on a bisque load, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you're in there, and you're like, why are these brown flax all over my head?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: And it was the coil, and I just
1: straight through. And there's a good chance that that could be caused by debris that gets in the in the channel. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's just talk briefly about electrical, electric kiln construction and design. Basically, for pottery studio kilns, um, there are really two, two main shapes, as you're probably aware. There's, there's, basically, it looks like a box. Um, and they're either, either top-loading. The older type looked sort of like a chest freezer. You've probably seen some of the older ones. Big, heavy, thick walls, and the lid lifted up. That was also, that, those were some of the earliest ones, because that was before they even perfected some of the better insulation. So they weighed a tonne. And you literally lifted the top lid up that was about six inches thick and you and you loaded it from the top and now they've made they've made ones now where they have a a door that opens on the front front loading but they're basically a box and they have slightly larger versions that are called car kilns or shuttle kilns and so instead of having a door they stand on the floor you'll actually have a trackway and there's a, a rolling car that rolls in that has part of the one of the walls on it and it rolls in and rolls out but it's still basically a big box. The kind that we're probably also maybe more familiar with are what some people call a barrel kiln. They're they're oval. If you look down on them, they're round or they're oval in shape. And those are all top loaders. And they also, all of these kilns that we use, they have what the firing schedule is called intermittent or periodic, which means that we turn them on and off. Because not all kilns are fired like that. Industrial kilns, they have, they, have, they have larger boxes, basically, and they have larger car kilns and shuttle kilns, but they also have tunnel kilns that are never turned off. And so they might run the kiln for a year or two, an electric kiln, and never turn it off. And it's a big, long tunnel, and they shove the pots in one end and take them out the other, and there's, there's a belt or a track that moves through the kiln. And they put the, belt, the pots on the belt of the track, and it moves through the kiln and comes out the other end. And so they never turn the kiln off. And that's called continuous firing. And we don't use those in, our, in studios, but in high production facilities, that's, that's the norm. Because they, they can, they, 24 hours a day, they're putting pots through the, through the kiln. One of the, and one of the, what this relates to also is the fact that there's a limitation on the size that you can make an electric kiln to be practical. Because if you think about it, let's say this, I wanted to make this room into an electric kiln, and, I, and so I hang elements on the walls. If all the heat is coming from the walls, it's going to take a long time for the heat to reach the center of the kiln. Especially if, I've got pot, if, this, if this room was full of pots, it's going to take forever for the pots in the middle to get, to get hot. Because unlike a gas kiln or a wood kiln, there are no hot gases moving through the kiln that's, that's bringing the heat to all the pots. It's strictly the radiation coming, radiation coming from the elements. So there's a practical limit to the size, that the, the cross section of the size you can build electric kilns. Because otherwise it just takes forever. And you, you, you know, it's, it's really inefficient. The pots on the outside of the elements would get fried long before the pots in the center even got warm. So the solution to that, this is why the tunnel kilns are a solution to that. They can make very little narrow kilns and they can be a quarter of a mile long, um, but they're very efficient heating. And this is why electric kilns, unlike gas kilns and wood kilns, there's a a practical size limit. So I'll say some general features of electric kilns. Most of them, and this is sort of, and I'll point out some, this is where some of these differ from wood fire kilns or gas kilns. Almost all electric kilns are single chamber. You know, we talked about, if, you, if, we talked, if you're familiar with gas kilns, especially wood kilns, you can have multiple chambers, like tip the climbing kilns of J- Japan. We have the Naboragama, and one chamber connects to another chamber, connects to another chamber. Um, electric kilns are basically a single chamber. You don't have multiple chambers. And they're all basically some kind of box with a metal frame. If you notice, you don't see arch designs with, with electric kilns. They're all basically some kind of a box. One of the reasons is, is because they're for indoor use. You really can't have electric kilns sitting in, not very practical, in an unprotected shed or an unprotected facility outside. They need to be protected. Um, And as I mentioned before, the size of the box or the size of the kiln is limited. They can be long, but you can't make, it wouldn't be practical to make an electric kiln as big as this room for production. That's why they go to to tunnel kilns or something, rather than just making bigger and bigger boxes. And the elements, in all cases, the elements are located on the walls. The elements, because they have to hang them somewhere, so the elements hang on the outside to keep the the inside open to to fill up with the wear um, and also the other thing with now with the more modern ones they're all they're all very well insulated they may be with the you, did you all see the insulating fire and see the diff, the difference in the weight and as you can imagine, along with the weight, the, the brick is a lot better insulating, th- the lightweight brick, than the heavy brick. And the blanket is even, again, is a lot better insulating than the, than the brick, even the lightweight brick. So a lot of the, at least in industrial kilns, a lot of the kilns now are lined with blanket. They, don't need, they, use, they might use brick for the outside, like a shell, or even metal, and they're, lined, they're just lined with the blanket. The blanket is not practical for the kilns that we use because it's, it's too easily damaged. After it's fired, it gets, you know, so this is nice and flexible. and lives kind of like a, a blanket. But after you fire it a few times, it gets brittle. So if you bump it, pieces fall out of it. So you have to be very careful. It's not suitable for, for schools or really for, for, for the kind of pottery studios, the pottery kilns that we use. Um, the bricks are the kind of the sort of the best compromise. They're not the best insulation, but they're a little more durable.
3: What is it about? It's so much ma- makes
1: it so much better than that, that heavy one. The and air hole, you space. know, what you know, what the, you know, what the single best insulating material is air, okay. space. And so it's the fact that it's full. You know, this is why, you know, the, what's, what's, the, what's the insulating, you know, the fall, the, everybody wears in the fall like these, these, uh, the, you know, the fuzzy fleece. Yeah, fleece. The reason why fleece is a good insulator is because of all the air that's trapped in it. So it's all the little air pockets in there that actually provide the insulation. The same way in the blanket, only in the blanket, the air pockets. there are a lot more of the pockets and they're a lot smaller. And so the smaller and smaller you can make the air pockets and the more you have, the better insulate. So it's actually, it's the air that's doing the insulating. Um, the other thing about, about electric kilns, that at least for the small models we use, they're not owner built. You know, people build their own gas kilns. We're gonna build one out here. People build their own wind kilns. Most people nowadays don't build their own electric kiln. You could, I knew a guy that built one in Maine, because um, he had a supply, he could get some elements cheap and he just thought it would be fun and he almost burned his house down. But, but, but it was fun. Um, so you could, uh, but, but whereas industrial, and so they're, they're, they're commercial products, and then, whereas industrial kilns are custom built, they'll literally come in and build it on site. But again, it's constructed on site. It's not the, They don't show up with a truck and drop it off, they build it on the site. Um, so that's another difference between gas and wood is that people don't, generally don't build their own. The, three, the, other, the other last thing is there are three major components when we talked before about the other kinds of kilns, wood kilns, and gas kilns, three sort of parts of a kiln. There's the heat source, the wear chamber, and the chimney. And this is true of, of wood kilns and true of gas kilns. Well, in an electric kiln, the heat source and the wear chamber are combined. We, no long, we don't have a separate combustion chamber. Like in a wood kiln, you have the combustion chamber or the firebox, and then you have the wear chamber, and that's also true in a gas kiln. You don't have that electric kiln. It's, you have just the one chamber. That is the, com- the, the heating chamber and the wear chamber. And you also, you don't need a chimney. Now, you may need some kind of a vent to get the fumes out of it, like if it's, a, if it's indoors, you may need a, a vent to get the fumes out of the building or something like that, but you don't need a chimney. So it's different in terms, you still have those three parts, the, the heat source, the wear chamber, and some kind of a vent, but they're either they're combined or they're used differently than they would in the wood and the, gas, and, the, and the gas kilns. In terms of principles of operation, basically, it's pretty simple with electric kiln. If you control the electric power, you control the heat. The more power you put to the elements, the longer or the hotter the elements get, and the more heat you get. Pretty simple. But as I mentioned before, one of the big differences, there are no longer flowing gases moving through the kiln. When you're heating with a wood kiln or with a, or with a gas kiln, you've got, you've got a, essentially a river of hot gases that's moving through the kiln and conveying, bringing the heat to all the pots. You don't have that any longer. You've got sta- essentially stagnant air in the kiln. Almost all the heating is done by radiation. That's the, the heat is being radiated from these glowing elements that are on the walls. And so one of the differences is it can be, it's a direct line. It can be blocked. If I have a big pot sitting on the outside of a shelf next to the element, then the little pot that's sitting behind it won't get hot until the big pot gets hot and the big pot heats the little pot. Because if it can't see, if the if the radiation from the element can't see or hit directly that little pot, the only way the little pot can get hot is by something next to it getting hot. So electric kilns heat the wear by the, the work on the outside gets hot, which makes the work inside of that gets hot, which makes the work inside of that. So it works, from the, it heats from the outside in. So that's a big difference in the way they, they, they're heated and the way they're, they're, you have to think about them compared to an elect, a gas or a, or a wood kiln.
3: But at the same time because i was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about the, the the heat sources coming from different places aren't the ones on the outside then getting hotter than the big object in the center
1: yeah the ele- well the, the the hottest thing in the kiln are the elements right the hottest thing in the kiln the elements are the hottest but thing in the kiln
3: are they firing to a different I mean, what's in the center, would that end up firing to a different temperature than a, if you, you had a, a plate out here then you had a heavier vase in the center?
1: The answer is yes, they are. Technically, they are so, because the, the ones on the outside are being hotter are hotter longer. <coughs> but this is I'll get you just a second. Yeah. But this is one reason why, for instance, you don't want to use. You don't want to use glazes that are very specific with a narrow firing range because then it's very possible to have the pot With that glaze overfired on the outside and perfect in the center of the of the, of the because again We do firing by cones basically, which is time and temperature, right? Heat work That's what we fire by and that's what the clay respond the glazes respond to so It makes sense that the pot a pot that's sitting on the outside of the shelf is seeing heat a lot longer than the pot in the center so technically that pot is getting more heat work than the one in the center. So if I have a glaze that's very specific firing, it can get overfired out here and be perfect in the center or be perfect on the outside and be underfired. So that's, that's a reason why you, you want to you fire more slowly to allow the temperature to even out and you want to have glazes that have a little bit of a range to them so that you don't, you don't see that difference. I was going to share a story
2: that you came over to help me with because I was firing a really, I've been really big flat pieces that also have a lot of complicated things in the middle with glass and things that have different you know issues that um, so the corners were cracking mm. and I Phil came over because I was getting really frustrated and so now I haven't fired a big one because it's not something that you can really test fire like little tiny little things the whole problem is it's big so um, I'm just getting ready to fire another big one and I built walls to go around the outside with a separate piece of clay mm. To try to, to try to do exactly what he was saying you don't want to do with the big pot and the little pot. I actually want it to happen because I need the center of the glass to... Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's black.
3: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: and, and so whatever's closest to the elements is going to heat up first, and it's going to be heated longer. So um, there, first, we're continuing with the small studio kilns. There are two types of power control that we have commonly, manual and automatic. And the manual are basically this, and this is what they 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 when they first started out with electric kilns. You basically had on-off switches. This is a control panel from a really old electric kiln. This is a Cress kiln, and if you notice, it looks like like it had three wall switches in it. Like that's what it had. It had it had switches that just turned an element on and off. It had three different three different rings, and you could turn one on or two on or three on, and that was that was the full. This is the complicated control panel. So and that's and that's so that's and that's so the, the first ones were simply that if you they'd have they'd have a series of rings and when you wanted to turn the kiln on low you'd turn one ring on and when you wanted to get a little hotter, you'd turn two of the rings on and when you wanted to get hotter you'd turn three of the rings on um, and that was all the control you had and so when you think about that as well Okay, suppose I want to turn one ring on, which one do I turn on first? The one on the top, the one on the middle, the one on the bottom? Because it's not going to heat uniformly, obviously. If I turn on the bottom one first, then the top's not going to get as hot and vice versa. So that was part of a problem with, you didn't get very uniform heating with this system. Okay? But this, yeah, this was, this was the earliest kind of control. Um, so then, these are just on-off switches. Then what they did, they developed a kind of switch that actually sort of had a built-in timer and you'll see them and they have like a range on them and they call, they're called variable or infinite, actually they call them infinite switches. But it goes to like, like, not just, well, they, they also had ones that went like low, medium, high, and then they went to ones that were like zero to 10 or different settings on them. And they basically had a built-in timing mechanism in it. So what it did was when you turn it to a certain number, the power came on for a certain period of time and then turned off. So you'd hear, when you, when you fired one of these kilns, you'd hear these things going, bzzz, Blah, blah, blah. And every one of the switches was turning the power on, turning the power off, and they often would get out of sync. So you'd hear this constant sort of buzzing, turning on, turning off. And, and so when you turned it up to a higher setting, it let the power go to the element for a longer period of time. So if you were just turning it on low, it would kind of just click the power on, click the power off, just barely get them warm. And then as you turned it up to a higher setting, and so you had this full range of settings where it... it it would increase the time and then finally you could put them on high and then the power stayed on to the elements all the time. So that was kind of the next step.
3: I remember because my first one was without kiln-sitter or anything. Yeah, yeah. Paragon, which you later got. Yeah, it's right, right outside it. here, by the way. And, yeah. <laughs> and you had to witness the whole thing. It was oh, yeah. a gift, so what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you did, and, it, and it, there was this wonderful little chart. It would say at hour one, these key holes in, turn this, this ring to this, this ring to this, this, and, and, and every hour you'd go in and re-manipulate all of this uh-huh. yeah. stuff, and it was... It worked, they worked. Yeah, and you gave beautiful yeah. photos, still that you're like... <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
3: When you're you are to digital, you never go back. <laughs> right? Now you just turn on the gas and
2: let it fly.
1: But, but they, and they, they still make manual kilns, and they still, yeah. they work just fine, they work fine. Um, and, um, but, so then, then, but then they came up with the automatic or electronic controllers, and then they made them programmable. And the way these basically work, these basically, it works from the same principle, is that only now instead of having manual switches, there are electrically operated switches called relays that look like this. This is what's inside the control, that's a relay. Which means that if I turn on an electrical circuit, if I turn, if I turn a switch here, it tells this to turn on, and this turns on the power. So instead of turning a switch to turn on the power directly, this turns on the power to the elements. It, and it's, literally, it relays the signal to the elements. It's called a relay. And so what basically, when, uh, the way a, a programmable or the electronic uh, uh, controller works is there's a temperature measuring device in the or, or more of them in the kiln. And it measures the temperature. And the program, when they're calling it a program, it's a schedule. And, it, and in the, in the memory of the, compu- of the little computer that's built into the kiln, there's a schedule that says, after an hour, I should be at this temperature. And after two hours, I should be at this temperature. That kind of thing, okay? So what, the, what it's doing is the, the, the temperature sensor measures the temperature and tells the controller, and the controller says, hey, it's a half an hour into the firing. I'm supposed to be at that temperature. Am I at that temperature? And if you are, fine. If I'm not at that temperature, it puts a little more heat into the, into, the, into the elements. If it's too hot, it turns the elements off. And so the, the controller is trying to follow this, this preset schedule, which is basically time and temperature. At a certain time, I should be at a certain temperature. And I'm measuring the temperature constantly to see where I am with respect to that, that schedule. That's the way they work. And, and so the
3: new digital
1: kiln? Yeah. Okay. That's the way they work, basically. And so some of these kilns have and they have a thermocouple, which is just a—it's just a temperature measuring device that looks sort of like this. Thermocouples called, and it's the pr- it's, and sometimes they're in a little protective tube. This is a big one that sticks in. You'll see it sticking into the wall of the kiln. By the way, if you get if if you if you have a chance, if you're buying a kiln, get a kiln that has protection tubes and doesn't have bare bare thermocouples because the thermocouples will last a lot longer. And they're. They, it, this is like a car. The way they've made cars cheaper now is a lot of the things that used to get standard now it's an option. And so, um, but but if you, you want to get a you want to, it's one thing to look at is get a get a, a thing where your temperature measuring device is in a protective tube and not bare. It'll last longer. There's a temperature offset though when you have that. Well, <clears throat> yeah, there is with all of them anyway. There should be. Yeah. Which doesn't matter because you shouldn't be firing by temperature anyway. You should be firing by cones. Which we'll talk about.
3: Yeah. Is there ever a shelf life on extra parts? Because that is the one thing I have learned. No. Learning a kiln is buy all your extra parts. Yeah, no, well... If you're, if you're getting ready to buy one, buy extra parts. Because if you're ever in a hurry and you don't have parts,
1: yeah, and most of, the, most of the companies are pretty good as far as stocking parts, and there aren't that many, but, but you're, if you want to have it on hand and you don't want to be out of commission for a while, then yeah. But, but, but anyway, but, that, but that's the way the electronic controllers work. Is essentially, they, it's still the same idea, is that they're turning up the power to the elements and they're turning it up for a certain period of time, but, but the way they know how much to turn it up is what the temperature is compared to what they think it's supposed to be. So you, think of, you can think of a firing schedule as kind of a graph. And this is in fact what they've got, they've got sort of built into the, into the, into the programmer. If this is temperature and this is time, a certain firing will look like that. And so they know that after, after two hours, I should be at that temperature. And so after two hours, The the temperature that that is recorded and goes to the controller, it compares that to this sort of list that it has. And it says, well, am I higher or lower or right on that temperature? If I'm higher than the temperature, it turns off the heat because I've overshot. If I'm lower than the temperature, it puts a little more heat into the elements. And if I'm right on, it just keeps on going. So it's constantly checking what time, what temperature am I? What time, what temperature am I? That's the way they work. And so if you're... An important part of these electronic controllers, if your temperature measuring device, your thermocouple, isn't working properly, the controller is, is useless. It's it blind, basically. And it will go to error. Yeah, it'll, yeah, yeah. So what's the optimal distance for a pot between the pot and the thermocouple? Because if it's really close or far away, it will measure... At least an inch, I'd say. At least. An, I mean, we'll, I can talk about this later, but when I talk about loading, but one of the things I, I as a general rule, what I usually say is is I don't have any pots hanging over my shelves. If you notice most shelves, you end up with maybe an inch or so between the, sh- so you can get your fingers to load them. I, I, I just say, I don't want any pots hanging over the shelf. And if you do that, then you're not too close. You're not too close to the wall. And I've seen studios where, because of the either schools or, or like community studios, where there's a lot of pressure to get pots through. And so they'll pack the pots into there, which and for bisque firing, it doesn't do a lot of harm. Um, I mean, you can get away with it. But for glaze firings, if you pack them in too full, then you get differences and you get, you know, you get under-fired, over-fired pots, so it's not, worth, it's not worth doing it. One of the problems that I've seen, for instance, with bisque firings, and I've seen, again, studios where they just load the kiln up to the, trying to get the work through, is that some of the pots are over-bisque, some of the pots are under-bisque, and where that shows up is, is glazing. Because if, you're, if you glaze, and let's say you're used to working with a certain glaze, you get almost a routine. Let's say you're dipping. You dip the pot, you get sort of almost a certain rhythm. You know that if you dip the pot into the glaze for a certain period of time come out, you're going to come out with a certain glaze thickness. Well, if the pot is under bisked and you dip it in there for the same time, you're going to get a thicker glaze application because the pot is more porous. Or if it's over bisked because it was close to the elements, you're not going to get enough glaze. So part of the, to me when i'm when i'm firing things i don't want to have to make a separate decision every time i glaze something as to how long do i need to hold it into the glaze i sort of i wanted to get into this rhythm and so the pots are reproducible if i if i if i don't overload the kiln if you pack the kiln then some pots are overfired some pots are underfired and then every pot is different in terms of you know how long, how what you need to do the glazing for glazing so it just makes it easier so
3: how cool do you want to
1: Well, I mean, we're going, to, we're going to talk more about the later gene, but part of it is, like, you don't want it, you don't want it too close to the shelves. Um, now one thing to think about is narrow shelves always, shelves that are close to space always heat up more slowly. Um, so you want to think about um, where, where do you want to, if, if you have some, some, some short work, where do you want to put that stack of short shelves in re, into the kiln? Um, and there are some things that, you know, that we'll talk about
2: inch supposed
1: to be zero six or zero four? It it well it depends. Um, yeah, as with a lot of ceramics, there's no simple answer to anything. Okay, but <laughs> the reason why I say that is like for for no, let's say you're firing to cone ten, or even to cone six, you could bisque anywhere from 0, 010, which is r- quite low, to higher temperatures like 0, 6, 0, 05, or 0, 04. but what that's going to affect is like how much glaze gets absorbed when you so a lot of that is is what you want to do. There's no necessarily right and wrong thing to do it. In a lot of cases like you like I found for instance porcelain if you don't bisque it high enough, it's very fragile. And so when you if you bisque porcelain in it at 0.10, 10 and you and it can be very and you, glaze, you just you can break the stuff just with glazing tongs or just handling it so a lot of it might be the way you want to work like what kind of consistency do you want your glazes and how strong do you have to have the pots like are they if they're very very thin walled pots then you probably want to bisque them you know, differently than if they're thick so a lot of it there's there's no in that case there's no right or wrong the other, the other side of that is if you're doing earthenware which is low fire then you probably want to bisque to 0.4. Because with earthenware, you want to bisque fire higher than you glaze fire.
2: So, Phil, let me ask the question differently. What do you bisque to here? I bisque to 0.6. <laughs> okay.
1: For me, I found 06 is a nice compromise because it makes things, and regardless of what temperature I'm firing to, except unless, unless I'm doing earthenware, if I'm doing earthenware, I do 04. But for for, for for cone six or cone ten or anything else, I bis to O06, because I found it pretty work pretty much works for all types of clay, because different clays get stronger when you fire them than others. It works for, you know, just about any so I found that's a that's a nice compromise 06. that answer your question? Okay. Can you tell the
2: last thing you said that with the thermocouples, there's like it works like it's got a couple of wires. So uh huh. it. can you explain a bit more about like,
1: how that works? Yeah, the thermocouple is basically consists of two wires made two metal wires of different compositions joined at one end. So if I have if I have a wire and then a a different kind of wire and I join them together and typically what I join I join them together by actually melting them together. I arc weld them together. This is called the bead or the junction. And so they're they're really they're not just twisted together, they're really intimately connected. They're wel- they're they're melted together. And this is the principle of physics that if I have two metal wires of different compositions and I pass and I heat up the, the I heat up the junction, it generates an electric current. It's bizarre, but it's it, it's true. It, is
3: it like an electron jumping from like the different, different
1: levels? Direction? Yeah. So so it, it, just any two wires, metal wires of different composition connected together, when I heat up the connection, it, fo- it generates an electric current. So if I stick, this is my thermocouple. So when I stick these, these this joined wires into it and it gets hot, it sends back a very, very small electric current, and you measure the current. And the, and the more current there is, the higher the temperature. And so, and depending on, depending on what these wires are made out of, you get different amounts of current. So there's a whole different sort of set of tables or, or for depending on what the pairs of wires are that correlates to temperature. But you're measuring current and that current represents a certain temperature. Which was a great discovery. I mean, it's bizarre though. You just, yeah, just connect two metals, heat them up in it and you get an electric current out of it. Okay, um, let me keep going here. OK, so programmable kilns, we're still talking about. By the way, I'm not trying to discourage questions, but we had a, we had a long discussion at the beginning, and I don't want to keep people too late today. And I've got about another 37. No, I'm kidding. So we're good. And I want to allow more, more time for questions as we go along. So, there are two, so talking more about the programmable uh, controllers, there are two general types of programs that people do. Um, One is called cone fire and they may have different names, but the cone fire basically means that you pick on the controller, you select a cone that you wanna go to and you select the speed that you wanna get there and that's all you have to do. Really easy. So you might just say and I think in general they're called cone fire. So you say I wanna do a cone six firing and so you'll put in cone six You'll put in six, and then they usually they'll give you a choice of either like fast or slow, or faster, medium or slow, and that's your heating rate. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is that the companies, and so the, the, the kiln now knows, if I say cone six medium, that there's nothing standard about that, by the way. Medium, might, it might depend on the kiln company. What, what one company thinks is medium might be fast for another company, so you have to find out. But what they've done is, You know, we talked about things are are heated or we measure, we fire by, by heat work. What they've done is the company has worked out for that particular size kiln. If I put this amount of power into the elements for two hours, they've worked out essentially how much heat work they're getting. And that's how they've worked out the schedules. So they've worked out the schedules and they've calculated the heat work, the time and the temperature that you need to get to cone six and so that's, that's essentially, and, so the, and then they produce that in the form of this, the same kind of a chart, time and temperature, but they figured it out ahead of time, okay? Now the other, kind of, the other kind of firing you can do is called ramp and hold. And basically this is where you can write your own program. The other programs are are canned. They're built right into the controller and you can't change them But you can also do a program like if you think of a heating schedule like this again. Here's this is this is temperature and This is time You what you can do is you can you can break down and I showed you this curve before that represents sort of the heating rate you can break it down into small segments and you can write your own program for what you want those segments to be. So I can say that for the first segment, I can say, okay, I want, the, te- I want the, 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 the kiln to heat up to a certain temperature, whatever that is, and then I want it to stay there for a certain period of time, and that represents one segment. And so when you write these, when you, when you write these programs, they say you can have a certain, you can create a certain number of segments that make up the program. So I can make up a program that looks that essentially looks like this. That, and so in each one of these, in each one of these segments, I say, how fast do I want it to heat up? What temperature do I want it to go to? And how long do I want it to stay there before it moves on? That's that's one segment. And typically the programs, depending on the on the manufacturer, will get, will say, you can write up to eight segments, or 10 segments, or 12 segments, whatever, they, whatever they've allowed for in the program. And so you can build your own program. And you can, you might, so you might be able to say, well, I'm doing a really weird firing, and I don't want to fly right past a certain temperature. I want to go up to a certain temperature. I want to stay there for a while. And these canned programs won't do that. They're they're pretty much set to be kind of routine bisque firings or routine glaze firings. So this gives you the opportunity to to write your own custom programs for sort of unusual applications. The other thing that this is really nice for is now I can do controlled coolings. Because controlled cooling is really difficult with a manual kiln because you, you can't, you know, you, you, can, you can turn down some of the, the things and then you have to watch the temperature and you maybe have to, and then if you get too cold too fast, you got to turn it back on. Well, I can, I can just as easily program it to come down at a certain rate to a certain temperature and stay there for a while, and then down to another, for at a certain rate to another temperature and stay there for a while. And then I can say, okay, now when I'm done and now you can just cool off at a natural rate. So these are, this, one of the things that controllers have really done is they've really popularized crystal glazes. These crystal, you know where you see these rosettes of crystals? Because they in order to develop the crystals, you have to do controlled cooling. And without with, and so these are and so this has really made it easy to make to do to do crystal glazes now. Because you can you can, you don't have to manually try to try to guess on what the cooling rate is, you can set it, and you can work it out and repeat it every single time. Yeah, Jane? So with
3: additional digital kilns, because you can do that, can you also use it as a glass kiln?
1: Mm-hmm. Because
3: mm. I know there's certain points Oh where absolutely.: you hold it and,
1: and you Absolutely. Know. As a matter of fact, what's interesting is the kilns that we have here came with in addition to this, this you know the, the cone fire and the ramp hole thing, they came with four built-in glass programs. Oh. Because they knew that you were probably gonna want to do exactly that. So they have they have they have four programs built in for, for, for firing glass. A fusion and attacking and a and a, yeah, and a slumping. And I fired a kiln with glass. And clay. Like, That's
3: the same. Does the clay fume affect your
2: glass, or vice versa, or can you tell? The fumes? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I probably don't get out of it. I don't know. Maybe not, not, not <laughs> that's why I don't know. <laughs> I've been there, you know. Yeah. So, I don't know. But it feels helpful to me, because it's a challenge, firing glass and clay, because they have two different coefficients of expansion. Exactly. So um, mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been a little frustrating, but It's
1: doable. You like
2: challenges.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of The Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for The Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show.
1: Okay, so some advantages of electric kilns, just to sort of summarize some of what we've been talking about. Well, they don't need constant attention, so they're kind of the opposite of a wood kiln. You know, we're a wood kiln, you're, you're stoking, my, my little wood kiln had to, every five minutes I had to stoke, so it's kind of the opposite, You can, especially with a controller, you put them up and you walk away. Um, they have a lot of convenience features now. They have this delay feature on a lot of them where you can program it, and then Set a timer and you can have the, the, the firing actually start sometime later when you're not there because to me kiln should Should fit my schedule not the other way around So I would I like when I run the kilns here I program to end at a certain time when I know I'm going to be here so I can I can I can program in a delay I can say don't start don't turn on the heat for another 12 hours so that knowing it's a 12-hour firing whatever it will end when I'm going to be here Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock So that's a really nice, convenient feature. I mean, it's simple, but it's convenient. A lot of them have a preheat feature where now I can do a long, slow hold and just pre. If, I, if I'm if I'm if like for bisqueware or something, I, or if I have glazeware that isn't totally dry when I put it in the kiln, I can dry it out, and that's a nice convenient feature. And they even have things like an alarm now, where I can, if I want to remind me of something to do something at a certain temperature, I can set an alarm and have it just ring a buzzer and basically say, "Hey, it's you know it's it's nine o'clock or it's this temperature. You 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 wanted to remind to do something." The other thing that's nice about is with these custom schedules, is I can, not only, not only, I can save them, but therefore I can repeat them. If I go to, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm working out a custom schedule to do something special, and I've gotta do several attempts to sort of work out the details, when I finally get there, I can repeat it because I can program it in, and I don't have to, don't have to put it in every time saying, now what did I do last time to make this work out? It's built in. So I can, I can, I can write a custom program and then save it, which is a huge labor-saving thing. Um, as I mentioned already controlled cooling is easy now with these but the programmable ones I don't have to stand there and worry about it And even now they've got they, you can for some of the newer controllers I can I can connect them to my computer and they even have Wi-Fi capabilities So I can actually control your kiln from your phone if that's important to you Okay, so just additional some additional kiln equipment um, kiln furniture we have actually, for, unlike maybe for gas, for gas kilns or electric kilns, we probably have the widest choice of, of materials. And you have the typical, cordi- what's, what's called cordiorite, the classic um, sort of these sort of yellowish beige um, shelf material. It's called cordiorite. That's actually the name of a mineral because the mineral actually exists. And You probably, everybody's seen these. This is sort of the classic, I'll pass it around, but this is sort of the classic kiln shelf material. And that's only good up to about cone 10. And even at cone 6, after a while, it sags and droops and warps because when it gets hot, when it gets hot enough, it actually starts to melt a little bit, slightly. And so the the shells will will sag a little bit. they also have, they have shelves that have more aluminum oxide in them called high alumina shelves. The British, the, I don't know that Ameri- any manu- American manufacturers make them, but in Europe, they make them a lot. They're called high alumina shelves, and they're a little more warp-resistant, a little more slump-resistant than the Cordierite. They're more expensive, and they're heavier, physically heavier. Um, the other thing is now we have, and that, uh, one of, the, one of the, the things that actually works pretty well for... Uh, for electric kilns, these are called, this is called CoreLite, C-O-R-E-L-I-T-E. And this is, this is, they're still Cordierite. But one of the things they're trying to do is, as you, if you've handled any of these, is take some of the weight out of them. You know, if you're loading electric kiln and you're bending to put that bottom shelf in, that's a backbreaker. So that what they do is these are extruded. And so they have these channels in them so they can, you can have a thick, fairly stiff shelf. They've taken a lot of the weight out of it. These are only good for, uh, these, these are not even, these are not going to be so good at cone 10. Cone six, they're fine. They're still going to warp after a while and slump, but they're a lot lighter weight than, than the normal cordialite shelves. Because if I, like that's, that piece I passed around is fairly thin. If you had a cordialite shelf that thick, it's going to be pretty heavy. So this takes a lot of the weight out of them. But they're still only, they, even at cone six after a while, they start to sag a little bit, and they, so they're no longer flat. One of the ways, and I'll, I'll mention it now because this is one of the things you can do about it, is if you have cordierite shelves, is when you bisque fire, flip the shelves over. Don't can always. For kiln wash? Sure, because you don't care if kiln wash falls on your bisque well, pots. So turn your shelves over, fire with the kiln, you know, you put the kiln wash on them to protect, the so glaze that. Put the kiln wash up when you're glaze firing, flip them over and put the kiln wash down when you're bisque firing, and you can extend, you can, you can cut down on the warping of the shelves. And then the last thing that, you, one of the things now you can get is, well, these are called Advancer. This is silicon carbide shelves. And this, I'll, if you wanna come up and look at one later, we use these here exclusively, but they're really, this is, this is the, you know, they're really lightweight, but this is the material. They're really strong, they stay flat, you don't need, you don't need kiln wash, and they're really expensive. This is, this shelf here is $180. Mm-hmm. But if you, as long as you don't drop them on the floor, they're, they're, <laughs> they're pretty indestructible. So I'll pass this around, but you can see they're a lot thinner, a lot lighter weight. You know, another advantage of them is they heat up a lot faster. One of the things, if I have a really thick kiln shelf on, this, is, this, and this, this, this goes back to one of the things we were talking about and we'll talk more about later, is loading. If I have some work, some really flat work, especially like people will make plates that don't have foot rings on them, you know, just a, like a flat plate. If it's sitting on the shelf, then the bottom of the plate is gonna take a long time to heat up because it's sitting on a cold shelf. And the bottom of the plate that's sitting right flat on this shelf is not gonna get hot until that shelf gets hot. So the rim of the plate that's sticking up is getting really hot very early, and the bottom of the plate is staying cold, which means that they're expanding differently, which means you can get cracking. So one of the advantages of these silicon carbide shelves is they heat up a lot faster and you get a lot more uniform heating of pieces that are sitting on the shelves.
3: So the core light? Faster than the
1: cordiary? They do they yeah, they're still right but but right. they do heat faster because they're not as thick because that thinner section can get hotter faster. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, but so at least for, for electric kilns, we have a lot wider choice of materials that we can use for shelves than you do for gas or wood. Gas or wood, you can't use cordierite. you can't use, you can use high alumina, but you can't, you, and, and you really actually, you can't even use, you can't even use advanced. You can use a different kind of silicon carbide, but you have to use the thicker, sort of more old-fashioned kind of silicon carbide. Um, another sort of additional, I'm talking about additional equipment, is the kiln sitter. And I've got two examples i put. Is everybody familiar at all with a kiln sitter, vaguely or not at all, everybody? You know what a kiln sitter is? Okay, um, I, I just, this is an example of a really early one and that's an example of a, of a later one. The interesting thing is, if you notice, that one has a timer built on it because in case the kiln sitter part doesn't work, the timer will help shut it off. And the real point why I brought these, yeah, this is the Vanna White thing. <laughs> The real point why I brought these in is these, are not, these were never intended to be a kiln controller. This is one of my pet peeves in ceramics. They were only meant to be a safety device because they're not that accurate. They're not reproducible or reliable. So they were really only meant to, if you, if, if you were working in your studio and you had to run out and run an errand and you got run over by a bus and you, weren't, you couldn't get back to turn off your kiln, your house wouldn't burn down. They were never intended to to really control the firing. You should always be firing by watching cones bend. So this is just a backup, which is why, and and to me, it's it's living proof, on the kiln sitter, it's got a backup to the kiln sitter because they know already, and they manufacture it, that it's it's not gonna work all the time, which is why they have the timer to back up the kiln sitter on the kiln sitter, okay? So it's like, it's pretty obvious they're saying, we don't have a lot of confidence in this product, but if you wanna buy it, here it is, you know?
3: I'm going to tell a quick horror story that just happened.
1: Well, oh, good.
3: Yeah. But even on the digitals, because I've always heard you say, be there, be there, but yeah, yeah. it's going to cut off. Yeah. Well, of course, most of it's going to be all right. Yeah, yeah, right, uh, <laughs> sure. And I understand. <laughs> and and I, I didn't, you know, I, or I might have been there, but I didn't to check it or whatever. And I remember later that in the morning I checked and it said something. And I went, hmm, it must have cut off in the middle of the night because it said air and there was a storm. So it probably. Air so, P, probably. Right. And so I flipped the little button and went, OK, it's off, you know, and, and just walked out. Later that afternoon, I went in and I was like, well, that temperature didn't drop a whole lot, you know, but I was in a hurry doing something. and I went, it's just probably heavy load. I wasn't thinking about it was not back in the studio again because it was off. Next day, next morning, I go in. It's hotter than when I had gone in the afternoon before. And I went, oh, crap. And I'm like, what is this? I, I had no idea. And so, of course, I'm pulling the plug at that point. You know, going, And I run into my husband, who has a lot of electrical experience. I'm like, what, what the heck's happening here? And, and he... And we had to do a lot of research because he's not that up on kilns per se, and it was the relay had gone, and it opens. It sticks. It stays open yeah. so that thing will be a continuous heat. And I looked out, and it is in a blob building too. But that thing is going to keep firing if your if your relay fails. Yeah. So you could burn down.
0: Yeah. So you. Yeah.
3: I did. Those, and <laughs> thankfully, nothing burned down. And actually, the kiln mode turned down in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you. <laughs> But um, just to back up Phil's advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I mean, here, I make it a habit. I, I, and actually, with any kiln, I'm always there when the kiln shuts off. I'm always there. And I don't care it's a gas kiln, a wood kiln, or an electric kiln. Um, I'm here. We just finished our 100th firing the kiln over there in the other building the other day. Um, but I'm always here when the kiln shuts. For exactly that reason, because I don't care whether it's manual or it's kiln sitter or, or electronic, something can go wrong. Yep. Yeah.
3: And I've fired it exactly no. <laughs> <laughs> zero. So I do set it so that I will be home.
1: Yeah. It's four yeah. And now. Yeah. And you should be looking through, watching those little cones bend. Don't depend on the temperature. <laughs> I,
3: I, I grew up on that with the, with the, the old paragon. Yeah. Because that was the only way for me to control it. Yeah, yeah. But to wear the glasses too. Yeah.
1: Okay, kiln vents. I just want to mention these briefly. This is additional equipment. There are really two kinds that I've seen. One is what I've been calling the downdraft, and that's where there's a fan either mounted on the bottom of the kiln, or the better models now, the fan is actually mounted on the wall. But And you have holes drilled in the top of the kiln and a couple of holes in the bottom, and it pulls air in through the kiln and pulls the fumes out with it and then gets them out of the kiln. I think the, the model where now they, it's an improvement, they've put the fan on the wall rather than under the kiln, is better for a couple of reasons. One, the fan, doesn't, the fan motor doesn't get as hot. It's not sitting right under the kiln. But also, the hose that goes from the kiln to the hole in the wall is now being drawn on. So if that hole develops, if that hose develops any pinhole, it draws in air. Whereas if the fan is under the kiln and it's blowing the fan and if there are any holes in the thing, it's blowing it and the fumes are getting into the room. So it's actually safer to have the fan right on the wall so that the whole thing is being drawn suction and so that even if there are any leaks, it pulls the air in rather than blows it out into the room. But those are really effective. The other thing they've done is is that the, the other thing that the old manual kilns had, without, or the kilns without the fan had, is the top was always hotter than the bottom. Because warm air, warm air does rise, and um, heat doesn't rise, but warm air does. Um, but So the old kilns, where they were kind of stagnant, the, the top was o- very often, it was common to be a cone hotter than the bottom, at least. And they've pretty much eliminated that now. So just, and the thing is what these fans are doing is they're not creating a wind tunnel. It's just a very slight movement of air just so that the air isn't stagnant and it pulls the air out the bottom. Well, that's enough to even out the temperature. So you really don't have the problem of the hot top and the cold bottom anymore. It's pretty much eliminated that. Now, the other kind of, the other kind of fan I've seen is, called, is more what they call a fume hood. Like if here's your kiln and there'll be this device that sort of sits over the kiln like that, and it's connected with a hose that goes off. And the idea is it collects the fumes. Those are worthless. Those are worthless. Because you'd have to have. Oh, yeah, they all. Yeah, but. The, and they're, worth, they're worthless. Because if you think. If this, if this fan is on, why is that fan going to take air from down here when it can take air from here? So the answer is the air goes like this, and the fumes that are coming out here and this. and go over here and hit the student. <laughs> Okay, so uh, th- these, th- these, are, these are pretty worthless. I mean, but they, they still sell them. And even the ones they have some that lower down over the kiln, they st- you'd have to have incredibly strong, we used to use these a lot in industry where we had some kind of a piece of equipment and we could put it right next to the equipment. And they're they're better than nothing, but again, they're going to take the they're going to draw the air the easiest they can. So they're going to take air that's right next to it. If 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 there's a leak in the bottom of the kiln and there fumes coming out, why is this fume necessarily going to be drawn? There you know there isn't. You know one thing you can if you have one of these and you want to. If, this, is an, this is sort of a paradox too, because when I've been in schools is that and, I, and I've talked to teachers about problems like this is on the one hand. They wanna make it safer, but if they point out to the school administration that it's unsafe, they might just say, well, then let's just cancel the whole program. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation, but if you have the opportunity to, you know, to talk to somebody, one of the things that really works is a piece is a, as a, um, a piece of incense stick. Get one of these incense sticks and light it, and you can use it to see where the air is moving. And turn on the fan and hold it down at the bottom of the kiln and see if the smoke from the incense fan goes up and is drawn into this, or see if it wanders off into the room. I almost guarantee it'll wander off into the room. But it's a nice way to demonstrate, in fact, what this fan is doing, or even how strong it is. You know, how far away can I go from this fan where it'll draw in the smoke from the incense stick? I, I was just going to say, I just recently, you know, at the auto purchase, mine that goes on the water—they're not that expensive. No, they're not. They're really not. And, they're, and, they're, and they work great. They really work great. And they do two things. The nice thing is, they get the fumes out of the kiln, which extends the life of your kiln. And then they also get it out of the room. Because the, usually the hose, you go through a wall or through a window or somewhere. So it does the two things that you want to do at once with the one piece of equipment, it gets it out. This, 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 the other thing is, see, this doesn't get it out of the kiln. This just gets it out of the room, so you still have the fumes finding their way out of the kiln and doing all the corrosion that they can on the kiln. So these are these are these are worthless, in Even my opinion. If you happen to be a teacher and you need one of those beds that you can mount to the side, I happen to know a charitable
3: organization <laughs> called Artworks for Good that would probably find one for you and let you have it. There
1: you go. Okay. So all you need to do is get permission to put the hole in the wall. Yeah. All you
3: yeah. I don't have a vent, but it's in a big, big, big barn. Mm-hmm. And I've been asking the people that work on the property not to be in there when I'm firing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think that would still be. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's probably 10 times as
1: big as this mm-hmm. room. Which you probably fine.
3: But I, but they still probably shouldn't be in there when it's
1: hard. Well, you know, this is the kind of thing where, unless you have some kind of an. I mean, you know, like a lot of medical conditions are really kind of, I don't know, they're statistical. Like some people are very sensitive to something and other people are not. So there's no, there's no exact solution. But a lot of these things with these things like fume kit, it's, it's long term exposure. So it's not like, with most people, it's not like you know, one sniff and you're gonna fall over. Um, it's the kind of thing where after long-term exposure, you could have respiratory problems and things like that. So you're probably fine. If they were in there occasionally. Yeah, occasionally that's probably. Because you know, you're, you're gonna notice it also. You'll notice that kind of acrid smell and it's not gonna be pleasant to be in there. Okay. Uh, I mean, I knew, there was a situation I knew years ago. There was a woman that had a kiln in her basement and um, it was a little tiny basement with a concrete block basement and she had her washing machine and her dryer in this one little part of the basement, um, and she, she also had a kiln in there, and she used to sit in there and watch the kiln fire while she was doing the laundry, and she'd been doing this for like 30 years. And I looked up, and I, I went over to help her check her kiln out one time, and I went over, and she had, like, you know the old high basement windows? And the basement windows weren't letting in a whole lot of light, and uh, so I went over to look at the windows, and the windows were frosted. The glass had become frosted, basically, from the fumes in the, in the, and she'd been sitting there for 30 years, you know, reading or something, watching the kiln, and while her laundry was going on. Not good, yeah. I mean, it had literally attacked the glass on, well, she was also using glazes that contained a lot of stuff that can produce. How is she? I'm not sure she's still around even, actually. (laughs) I'm not even sure she's still around, but yeah. But I thought that, you know, that was the worst possible. It was this little dead-end room with her and the kiln and her washer and dryer. It's like, yeah, the worst possible thing. She's just sitting there breathing this stuff, you know. Plus, she smoked, which didn't help.
3: So I have a question: This uh, fan the wall thing, how big of a hole do you have to put in your wall?
1: Just big, about that big. You know what works really well is a dryer vent. Yeah. You can hook it up to a dryer vent, but it's not any bigger than a dryer vent.
2: So if you want to kind of, see one go to the outside of this building on
1: the back. Yeah, I can show you the one we have here. Yeah, but that's typically the, the thing that you can, you can use as a pass-through is, you know, the dryer vent thing, right. the little dryer hood? Right. That works great. So if you have two kilns, you
3: need two of these on-the-wall
1: fans? Well, no, because actually the, the model that we have here, say by Orton, the one fan is, is made to handle two kilns. And you're probably not ha- firing the two kilns at once unless you own stock on the power company. So, you, you, so you, can, you, can, you can run both, you can permanently hook up both kilns to the single fan okay. made by Orton. Okay. Orton kiln vent, it's called. Thank you. Okay, and the last little extra piece of equipment I just, I mentioned already is maybe, or in, incidentally is a pyrometer. You might want to, a, a pyrometer is just a thermometer for measuring high temperatures. And they can look, they can either be, they can either be analog, which just they just have a little gauge on them like this that, um, so uh, basically, it's a thermocouple hooked up to some kind of a thing. Well, they can be digital. They can have a probe, and you can read digital. But you might want to have, if you don't have a controller, you still might want to have one of those for manual kill just to monitor the heating rate. Because without, with a controller, it's constantly telling you what the temperature is. But this way, if you don't have a controller... You can, you can monitor what's happening, and you can see, like, you know, gee, all of a sudden the kiln is heating up more slowly than normally. Instead of waiting till the end of the firing to find out that something went wrong, during the firing you could say, hey, something's going on with this firing. I know it's heating up more slowly than my other firings. So it's not, it's not a necessity, but it's a handy little, and they're not that expensive, it's a handy little piece of equipment to have. What mm-hmm. is that again? A pyrometer. Oh, no, the thing that you
3: held up.
1: Oh, well, this is, this, is, this is a little pyrometer. There's the thermocouple. This is a really simple one. It's a little thermocouple, and I stick this through a hole in the kiln wall, and I read the temperature on the dial. This is an analog. And they make digital ones now that are more accurate and they're more responsive, but they still have the little thermocouple you stick in through the wall, only it has a digital readout.
3: So do they make those so that uh ceramic coating doesn't like break off eventually like
1: they always do? Well they ha- the most like the ones that I have now that the one that I have that's digital, it's portable, this is all this is a metal, a high temperature metal sheath mm-hmm. instead of being ceramic. Okay. This I- was this was ceramic partially also because if you drilled a hole if you drilled a hole through the wall of the kiln, you gotta make sure that you don't hit one of the elements when you're drilling the hole through.
2: Can you put
1: like, a pole? Yeah, you could. Sure. That's the nice thing with the digital ones. You just have this metal probe so you can just put it through one of the peepholes and check the temperature if you don't want it in there all the time. A lot of the times, so though, you might want it sitting in there the whole, during the whole firing so you can monitor what's happening. If you poke it through, then you've got to be careful you're not going to hit any pots. Mm-hmm. So you have to plan that when you're loading the kennel. Like, okay, I'm going to put the thermocouple in here, so I'll leave a little pathway where I'm going to put the, the, the thermocouple in. But sure, absolutely, you could. Okay, And just to mention, there are two types of thermocouple. There's nothing simple, right? There are two types of thermocouple. One's called type K, and the other is called type S. And type K is is not as durable, basically. Overall, it's not as durable as type S. They don't last as long, um, and they're not as resistant to fumes and acids and things as the type S. But they're a lot cheaper. So it's kind of analogous to the two kind of elements you have. You have a cheap one that, that works, but it's cheap and it's not as durable, and, but it costs a lot less. And generally, if you get a kiln, I'd recommend it's an option. They, they, they come with type K. If you have the option to get the type S, I'd say it's worth it to get the type S thermocouple. They'll last longer. And they're more resistant to corrosion and fumes and things like that. They might cost you an extra 100 bucks because they're made out of platinum, but they're pretty, they're pretty durable, pretty indestructible. Okay, advantages of electric kilns or electric firings, just to the, the, the procedure in general. Well, you have good precise temperature control now, much better than you do, let's say, generally with wood or gas. There's a wide range of kiln sizes available. Now, I mean, they have, now that you can get and that you've had all along, but you have little small test kilns that run on just 110 volts. And now you can get bigger kilns, so there's there's a a much, and they're different, slightly different shapes, like you have like square or oval, so you have a pretty good range of, of sizes. They're clean, they're convenient, they're easy to use. Um, not much maintenance is required on an electric kiln in, as routine. They're easy to repair. One of the reasons why I brought this other box, this is an older kiln where you just had the switches, but I, I brought this along just so people can look inside, and you can see there isn't much to them. If you have to replace one of the switches, re- it's a 10-minute job. They're really easy to repair. For
3: you, it's a 10-minute
1: job. <laughs> well, no but, no, but it's a few nuts and bolts. And, you know, I mean, they really are. You know, it's not like you... I'm going
3: to do that right now, so... Okay.
1: Okay. But that's... I mean, they you know, they're not that complicated. Um, the other thing, I mean, they're, they're, they're portable. Now, you can, almost all the electric kilns, they make, a lot of the bigger ones, they make in sections. That's the reason why, they, so you can move them around, so they're portable. You don't need a chimney, the chimney required. You don't need to preheat the kiln, the chimney, like with a wood kiln, especially a wood kiln, but get, uh, you need to preheat the, the, the chimney so you get some draw. Well, in this case, you're not worried about draw or gases. See, there's no need to preheat the bricks or preheat the kiln. You just turn it on. Um, and in fact, you can get a very rapid heat up if you want to. There's no stalling. With gas kilns and with wood, you probably all heard of this feature with gas kiln and wood kiln. You get up to a certain temperature, and the kiln stalls because you're not putting in heat fast enough. Well, electricity, you just basically turn the knob up higher. And so you have almost unlimited, in some cases, too much heat but, but there's no, it's not like there's any—so you, the, you don't have the stalling issue that you have with gas and wood kilns. Um, controlled cooling is easy, as I mentioned, and you have consistent results, very consistent results. Now, talk about disadvantages. One of the disadvantages of electric kilns is consistent results. And by that I mean it's the fact that electric kilns are so predictable is the fact that you don't have the opportunities for serendipity like you do with gas and wood kilns where happy accidents can happen. And you can go, oh, look at that great flashing pattern I got. Or look at what happened when the ash hit the pot here. You have the reproducibility. They're incredibly reproducible. But you're not going to have the, as many opportunities unless you create them with a glaze or something for something unusual, a happy accident. Happy accidents don't happen very often. Because you're not, you don't have those other, un, you know, unless you do, well, I, I did say happy accidents, no, you know, not accidents, but happy accidents, okay? So, so there are a lot of people that claim that basically they, they love electric kilns, but they're too consistent. They like, they, like, they like a little of the unpredictability of some of the other kinds of firing methods. Um, electricity can be expensive depending on where you are. When I lived in Maine, electricity was really expensive because there weren't any. Low, it was all brought in from Canada or from lower parts of New England, so it was pretty expensive. Um, another thing is that the insulating fire bricks, in general, cool down very quickly. So that, like gas kiln, wood kilns, because you build them out of the heavy bricks, they cool down really slowly. And you get some really nice glaze effects. You tend to get more crystallization of the glazes and some nice color effects because the, the, the kiln is cooling down slowly and so are the glazes. That doesn't happen with electric kilns. They cool down you know, very quickly. You have a question? Yeah. Can you put
2: anything on the, on the top after
3: you know, the fire, you know, so
1: it will cool that slower? You'd have to wrap the whole thing in a blanket. And they're really not designed to do that because the insulation and the electronics and everything are made to take a certain temperature and they're they're made to cool off to protect the kiln itself. So you really don't want to wrap the kiln in something. The best way to get around that is buy a kiln if you have the option with thicker bricks. Like some of them, they'll have like three-inch bricks is is very often is an option. So if you want to do that, buy the kiln with thicker bricks if you want it to cool more slowly.
2: program it to cool
1: slowly. Or program it to cool down more slowly, right. But by themselves, when they turn off, they cool down slowly. I mean, they cool down quickly. So you're not going to get some of these really nice crystallization effects that you get in gas kilns and wood kilns that are made out of the hard bricks, which cool down really slowly. Um, electronic controllers are sensitive to static electricity. You can, you can zap your electric. If you run across, if you have, still have some nice shag rugs in your studio, and you run across them in your fur-lined slippers and go over and touch the electronic controller and go zap! You could actually zap your controller with, with static electricity.
3: Uh, you know, when I, this is a question my husband I I said, do you have anything I should ask? And when he was reading a little bit on the relay, I've got an LL, right? And he said um, he thought the way he was reading this, they were saying not to vacuum because it can screw up the digital controller.
1: Not to vacuum what?
3: The... The kiln. Now I didn't read it. so nah. I can't say specifically. Nah. Nah. there's nothing there with the static or anything of messed
1: digital or. Uh, well, you don't want to. You don't. You don't want to vacuum off the electronic controller. Okay. I mean, the, you know. That's what you're Yeah, I mean, you don't want to like open the box and, and vacuum out the inside. I wouldn't do that. Because uh, yeah, you can generate static electricity with a vacuum cleaner. But we're just talking about vacuuming out the elements. Okay. And that. And if the, and if the relay is shut off. When you're vacuuming the elements, that's a clo- that's an open circuit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. No, that's fair. fine. That's fine. But so, but the, the, the part of the electronic controller system, as kind of you've alluded to, they're temperature sensitive, and they can even aside from maybe something going wrong. This is a, it, in, inside of here is this little sealed switch. They can also you, if they get too cold, they stick. So it's not a good idea to have an electronic controller kiln sitting outside in a shed. Because the, the controller is sensitive to temp, the element, the relays can stick while, when the temperature gets cold. And also, also high moisture can affect the controller. So an electronic, con- like the old-fashioned kilns, you used to be able to keep them in a shed outside. And as long as they didn't get rained on, you were fine. And that's still pretty true. I wouldn't put an electronic controller kiln outside that's really exposed to the weather. As long as it's, you know, kind of a little protected from the weather, I think you're okay. But I wouldn't put it out in just an outdoor shed that's totally exposed to moisture and high humidity and things like that, and especially cold. Okay, so disadvantages, consistent results, let's say there are a lot of artists that say that they love electric kilns, but they're too consistent. Nothing exciting ever happens, Um, and you know, that depends on your perspective and how how important reproducibility versus, you know, serendipity is, okay? Um, uh, Let's see here, oxidation, you can only do oxidation firings, basically. which means that you know when you're firing an electric kiln, you've got an excess of air in the kiln, so essentially all your firings are oxidation firings. You can do localized reduction in saggers if you want to put a pot inside of another ceramic container and do, put reduction in there, but, but you can't do a whole kiln load unless you want to do a whole kiln load of saggers. Um, this, is one, this is one case where I think like gas kilns, especially forced, forced air gas kilns, have a great advantage because I can do highly oxidation firings to highly reducing in a forced air gas kiln. And so of all the kind of kilns there are, you can probably get the greatest range of atmospheres with a forced air gas kiln. This is where I have an air blower and a gas burner, and I I can force in a lot of extra air and do oxidation firings, or I can, I can change the air and do reduction firings. So this is this, the opposite of the of sort of the opposite end of the oxidation firing in electric is probably this forced air gas where I have a, a great a possible choice in firings. Electric kilns you're pretty much limited to oxidation firings. If you want your elements to last more than two firings, or a, a short number of firings. Um, and as I mentioned before, both the elements and the thermocouples have a limited lifetime. So when you get one, you need to anticipate you are going to have to replace the elements um, and you are going to have to replace the thermocouple eventually. And replacement elements can be expensive. I mean, depending on how many you have, they can be, you know, $50, $60 per element, um, depending on what you need. And if you need to replace all of them at once, that's going to be, you know, a little bit of a shock. Um, the other thing is that for an electric kiln, if it's a 240 kiln, you need to have a separate outlet and a separate breaker, basically a separate line for your kiln. You don't want to have your kiln on, on a line in your house or your studio with anything else on it. You want it to have your own 240-volt line with, with its own breaker. So that's a little additional expense for the installation, is getting, is having its own line with its own breaker. Two common types of firings uh, in terms of of electric kilns are bisque and glaze firing. By the way, you may have heard the term biscuit firing and versus bisque firing. This is an old, this is a kind of an English tradition, but what we call a bisque firing is actually a higher temperature firing than the glaze firing. This is the old meaning of the word. A biscuit, what we actually do by the old, in case you see these terms, what we actually do is a biscuit firing where the first firing is lower temperature than the second firing. Technically, a bisque firing is where the, the, sec, the first firing is higher temperature than the second firing. But you almost don't hear that distinction anymore. We've gotten kind of, gotten kind of casual about it. Um, but occasionally, especially if you pick up an English book or a European book, they'll still talk about biscuit firings. And that's what the difference is.
2: What about
1: kiln versus kiln? I don't know. Yeah, Kiln?
3: Yeah. Phil says kill sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I,
1: kind of, I kind of swallow the end. Yeah. Okay, and so, but the main feature of a biscuit firing or bisque firing is a, a very slow initial heat up and slow through red heat while you're driving getting rid of the chemical water in the clay, and then you can speed it up. Whereas the glaze firing, you can do a fast, the early part of the firing can be very fast because you've already gone through the bisque firing. So when you're doing a glaze firing, the first part of it is you're just repeating the bisque firing. So you can go very fast early on and then you slow down at the end to mature the glazes. So it's kind of the opposite of the biscuit. The biscuit, you go slow and then you can heat up and the glaze, you go, you go fast and then you slow down. Couple, so here's some general firing recommendations. This, and these could cover a range of topics, but, think, but some general recommendations. Use a bottom shelf. You never fire on the bottom of the kiln. So you always want to have a shelf on the, that's about a, roughly an inch, like one inch posts off the bottom. It used to be, if you didn't have a downdraft fan, it used to be because the bottom of the kiln was cold and you didn't want pots sitting on the cold bottom. If you have a downdraft fan, you still need that because you need the clearance for the under the fan for the fumes to exit. So either way, you wanna have a a shelf on the bottom. Um, Stack, this is really important. Stacking or loading, how you load the kiln, really affects the temperature distribution in the kiln. Just because you've got a fancy electronic controller and it's got three thermocouples and all this stuff, doesn't mean that the temperature is uniform everywhere in the kiln. And so, for example, Closely spaced shelves heat up more slowly than widely spaced shelves because, again, it's radiation. How much heat can get in there? And if, I, if I've got one inch posts with some plates sitting in there, that's going to take forever for the heat to get in there to heat up that space. Um, if, you, if you don't have a kiln vent, if you don't have one of those down to a the vent, then you want to have wider shelves at the bottom. Because if you don't have a kiln vent, the bottom of the kiln is colder than the top, right? So if the bottom of the kiln tends to be cold on the top, I want to space my shelves more widely at the bottom than I do at the top, so that they'll heat up about the same rate. Everybody follow that? Okay. Um, And remember, the, the important thing to remember is the heat is coming from the walls. So one of the things to think about when you stack an electric kiln, if you have a choice, is put the tallest pots in the center of the shelf. Don't put a ring of tall pots around the outside and then plates in the, or something low in the middle, because they're gonna block the heat. And the only way the things in the center are gonna get hot is if the things next to it get hot first. Because it's all by, it's like light, it's the light or the heat shining on it coming from the outside that moves in. Um, if you have, when you're loading the shelves, put post over post as much as possible, which means when you, you, know, you put a post and right below it is another post. The reason for that is if I have a shelf and, and I have a lot of weight, if I have a lot of weight on the shelf, eventually, if the shelf is the kind that will sag, the shelf will warp Where I'm, if I'm pushing a lot of weight down in the middle of, of the shelf. So the more I can have the posts supporting the weight all the way down, the less stress there is on the, on the shelves, other than the weight of the pots. Is there a
3: difference between a 3 and a four? I've heard people say that 3 is better than the 4, you know, when yeah. you put them in on a shelf or.
1: Well, the only thing the only, generally you, you want to use 3 on each shelf because that way there's no wobble. The minute you use 4 if the posts aren't perfect you can get a wobble, but you do need 4 if you've got half shelves because then you need But generally you only want to use 3 on a shelf. Okay. So I, I
0: struggle with that because mine are rectangular. Uh-huh. So if
1: Yeah, uh, do deck Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you don't have
2: that extra like the corner.
1: Uh-huh. Them down. So I still use four, but
2: then I think I'm doing the wrong thing because
1: you won't hurt them. It's just that sometimes, unless your posts are all, ex- you know, after all the shelves warp a little bit, right. and you try to get four posts, and there's always that little bit of wobble, right. and so if that doesn't, bother, you're not hurting anything. Okay. But but it's just that, like, if I have a tall stack, I don't want the shelves wobbling. And if I have and if I use four and I get the by the time I get to the top, I can have a pretty wobbly stack. So you're not hurting anything, but you don't need it. That's all. Okay. You don't need it. Um, and
2: Jim Sanford actually uses three shelves on a wood fire kiln on square shelves. And the
1: corners don't work. It's not a problem. Yeah. As long as the, as long as your shelves are decent shelves, then, yeah. yeah. And yeah. and turn your shelves over, too. Yeah,
2: I And then yeah. It has I flames the flames and everything else. And and okay. Yeah. Okay. Right, yeah.
1: If you have if one of the other things trick that I do is before I load any kiln, I'll, I'll, I'll hit the shelves with my knuckle, or my head, but, and listen to the ring, because if you have a crack in a shelf, you can hear it. Instead of getting this nice tone, you'll hear it, it'll kind of go buzz, and so I don't want to load, I don't want to load a, a cracked shelf if I can help it, um, and have it fail during the firing. Or, let's say I can see the crack, so I always tap the shelves, I always do this, just tap routinely. But also, if you have a crack, let's say, especially if it's a full shelf, and I don't wanna abandon the shelf, you can use it, put the crack over a post. Put, so that both sides of the crack are, so that if I have a shelf, so that both sides of the crack are supported, if here's my shelf and here's the crack, I put a post under it so both sides of the crack are supported and then the crack can't really, won't, the chances of the crack won't grow much further. If one side of the crack is supported and the other isn't, then the shelf can do this and the crack, it can kind of tear or the crack can grow But if you put the the crack right over a post, you may have to move a post to a new location, but put the post under the crack and you can extend the life of the shelf. So as I mentioned already, you want to put taller pots in general, taller pots in the center so that they're not blocking the uh, the shorter pots. You don't want to put pots too close to the elements. I usually generally say an inch, at least an inch away from the elements. And the easy way to do that is don't have them hanging over the shelves. If your pots don't overhang the shelves, then you're keeping a good distance away from the elements. Um, if you're firing large plates and platters, you want them in the center of the shelf, as close as you can to the center, because if you think about it, if I've got a large plate and platter, the first thing that's going to get heated is the rim, and the last thing that's going to get heated is the bottom of the platter. And I don't want it to get heated non-uniformly. I want the whole thing to get heated at, the same, at about the same rate, ideally. So I want to, if I can I want to center it. Um, one of the things that I do that I don't know, one thing I do that I, I, I can't say I've ever seen proof that it works, but it's kind of a safety thing, is whenever I load, I always, t- I point the handles away from the elements. I never have appendages or, ele- or handles sticking, pointing toward the elements, because they're gonna get hot first. And if they're, if they're not firmly attached, and when, you know, and you all know that when you heat things up they expand, so if, I'm doing, if, if I have a mug sitting on the outside of a shelf and the, and the handle is pointing toward the element, that handle is going to get very hot very fast. It's a thin little piece of clay, and it's possible it could, it could aid in, in, in loosening the handle or breaking the handle off the pot. So in bisque firings and glaze firings, I always point the handle away from the elements. I, can, I may put the mug on the outside of the shelf, but I turn the handle in. And the other thing that's sort of along with that thing is if I have pots that are thicker, especially in a bisque, where I'm concerned about, you know, are they dry and are they going to blow up in the firing? But I'm going to put it in anyway. I put them in the center of the shelf because it's going to heat up more slowly. So I, wouldn't, I purposely wouldn't put a thick pot on the outside because I know it's going to get a shock. When the elements come on, that, pot, that pot's going to get blasted. So I put the thicker pieces in the middle of the shelf, knowing that they're going to take longer to heat up and a little slower, and so they're less likely to blow up if they're going to blow up at all. Uh, I mentioned already that you can flip over the shelves during bisque firing. Um, if you do put kiln wash, you don't need an expensive kiln wash recipe for electric kiln firing. You don't need, you know, sometimes you've probably heard of aluminum oxide. You don't need that at all for electric kilns. All you do need is is a one-to-one mix of silica and EPK. That works great. You don't need anything fancy for kiln wash for electric kilns. And I'd say if you can, You don't need to buy kiln wash because it's so cheap. Silica and EPK are so cheap; they sell it and they sell it like ten times what it's worth. So, if you just get a little EPK and a little silica, one to one, it makes a great kiln wash. Um, I mentioned already that the kiln sitter is a safety device. Don't use it as a controller. But a couple of, if you do have a kiln, a a kiln, a, a kiln sitter, before you put the cone in the kiln sitter, wiggle the arm with your finger to make sure it's not stuck. Because if they corrode. That, that arm can stick in position and you can, if it, isn't, if it doesn't move freely, you can raise it up, put the cone in, but it might not drop because there's a little corrosion going on inside the tube. So flip it up and down with your finger a couple of times to make sure it really moves freely. The second, the second sort of suggestion is, when you take, if you're putting a cone in the kiln sitter, right, one of the small cones, roll it between your fingers like this, roll it back and forth, because occasionally you'll get a defective cone that has a crack in it, and if you put it in the kiln set, it'll break and shut off too early. So you can find the defective cones. You put just barely enough pressure on them to roll it between your fingers, and, you, and if it's a defective cone, it'll break in your fingers.
2: How long are cones good for?
1: Ever. Forever. They don't do, they, they're made out of, they're made out of cl- they're like little clay bodies, so they're fine. But if you use a cone, and let's say the firing shuts off and something goes wrong with the firing, put a new cone in. So don't, put a ha- don't use half-fired cones or something like that, but yeah, they're good forever, okay? Uh, but yeah, roll the cone between your fingers, and I've had that happen a number of times where, because they're, ju- they're just mold, they're little ceramic pieces that are molded, and might you get one with a crack or a defect in it, and if it snaps, it's gonna shut off your kiln. So you can find that by just gently putting a little bit of pressure on it and rolling it back and forth on your fingers, and if it's defective, it'll break in your fingers, and then you know not to use it. And if you press too hard, you'll, just, you'll find that all the cones in the box are defective. <laughs> okay, and and for what I suggest is that also use the small cones in electric kilns this, this is why the, the small cones were created for electric kilns because if you use the big kilns, you know The ones that are like this you can't see them through the peepholes You have to put them if you if you typically the a cone pack you use like three cones one lower than the temperature one the temperature and one higher than the temperature you're going for if you use a pack of three of the large cones, you have to put them so far back in the kiln, you can't see them during the firing. And they're more expensive. And they're more expensive. Well, who cares for, for, for quality firings, you know? You know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But they are more expensive. But no, but you can't see them. So if you put, make a little cone pack of the little ones, you can put it right close to the edge of the shelf. And the other trick is, when you go to, the other trick is, when you go, when you go to look at them, um, is some, you know how sometimes you can't see them because they're glowing so hot. Pull the pea plug out and blow a puff of air on them. Just go, and then look at them. And that cools them off enough that they get dark and then you can see them. Okay. So don't burn your eyebrows off while you're trying to do it. But pull out the thing and just go, and then look at them quickly. And that'll cool them off just for a second. They turn gray and then you can see them. Okay. Is
3: supposed to be a
1: protective idea? Yeah, it's a good idea. It's a good. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah,
3: and I, Honestly, I talked to my eye doctor about that because I was getting a cataract and she said, you're young for that, right? And I said, is it because of, I used to do this? And she said, no, that's a different thing. But eye doctors knew about a condition with potters that was prevalent mm-hmm. because of that.
1: And it's, the, and it's the bright light, basically. But it's not
3: the cataract. It's, it's another condition. It's,
1: it's, but, it but it's the bright light. light. I think it's a retina sensitivity. Exactly. It's basically, it's, it's just, it's a bright light. They used to say that it was ultraviolet light and it's burning your eyes, but it's not. They don't your kilns don't make ultraviolet light. But it's, it's just it's like looking at the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean it's like a freak thing. I got a cataract when I was like 39. Okay, <laughs> well. In the in the same eye you used to look through the peepholes?
2: Only my left eye. Okay. okay, No,
3: yeah. <laughs> okay. seriously. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mine's only at the right, so yeah. So you can buy um,
3: the glass that goes in a welding helmet. Yeah. Grades of, you know, light. Right, lightness. Right, right. Do
1: you happen to know which number would be appropriate? Uh, I think I've I've got one that I think is like 11 or 10. It's pretty dark. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, I bought a pair of glasses that I use um, that for viewing through kilns. And they have a reflective coating on the outside. And then they're also designed to eliminate some of the yellow light. They're called didymium glasses. Didymium. Um, And they... Yeah, and they sell them, and they're special. And they're, I think they, they work better because they're not too dark and they're not too light. Some of the some of the welding glasses are just so dark you can't see a thing. Yeah. But yeah, I would check in the glass. They're worth it. Like thirty bucks, thirty five bucks, but they're worth it. So just some. I'm wrapping up here, but um, some quick. Uh, let me see if I talked about these already. Um, common firing problems. Well, I mentioned about using the kiln setter as a controller, so we won't talk about that. Temperature gradients. You can still get top to bottom gradients in a kiln, or you can, especially you can get a temperature difference between the outside of the shelves and the center of the shelves because of the the heating. Um, And this is again why it's important to use cones. Use cones on, you know. And if necessary, put cones at several, don't just put one set in the kiln, put several places. And until you get to know, this is why it's called mapping your kiln, if you get a new kiln, put cones all over the place in the kiln. Even if you can't see them through the peephole, so that when you unload, you can look at it and say, how uniform for the temperatures, uh, or the temperatures of my kiln. After a while, you'll get to know what your kiln is like, and then you don't have to put the cones in every time because you'll know how the kiln performs. But that way you'll know, like, is, it, is the center a lot, a lot cooler than the outside, or is the bottom colder than the top? And you do what's called mapping. Which it's, so it's worth doing. The other thing I wanted to mention is because elect, you have this almost unlimited power with an electric kiln, it's possible to heat up a kiln too quickly. And one of the ways this shows up is in glaze firings. And I run into this a lot with teachers where they're under a lot of pressure to crank the work through, and the kids are there screaming and yelling they want their pots, so they load up the kiln and they put it on fast, and all the glazes run. And the reason why is because, when, this is kind of weird, but when you, you know, we, we're firing by, by cones, heat work, but when I fire really quickly, then the final temperature to a certain cone is higher than if I fire more slowly. So if I put a number six cone in the kiln, and I'm going to do a cone six firing, and I'm going to watch the cone bend, if I fire slowly to cone six and the cone bends, or if I fire very quickly to cone six and the cone bends, when I fire quickly, the final temperature is a lot hotter than if I fire slowly. Why is that? Because the cone is measuring time and temperature. So if I've got less time, it takes more temperature to make the cone bend. It's, it's the combination of the two. So if I'm not giving it as much time, I, I have to give it more heat when it finally bends. So, and it can be 20 or 30 degrees hotter. That's enough, to make, that's enough for a lot of glazes to make them run. So what, ha- what typically happens is they do a quick firing and, and all the glazes, especially on the outside of the shelves, run because they've overshot the temperature by 20 or 25 degrees by doing the fast firing. So. It's, this, is the pro, this, is, this is a unique problem with electric kilns. It's very easy to fire too quickly. And, and also, even with bisque firings, you know, if you fire too quickly, even with pots that are completely dry, you can blow up the pots because you don't give enough time for the water to come out. So you've got this incredible power at your command, but you, it's easy to overdo it with an electric kiln. OK, so just, just to wrap up, a few things to remember then here. Um, Remember, there's a big difference between electric kilns and fuel burning kilns with respect to the heating and the way you load the kiln. In gas kilns and wood kilns, I've, I've got this river of flame that's passing through the pots. And so I think I don't have to think so much about a pot blocking another pot or I can, I can, I can choose it. In electric kilns, I have to worry about that, about what, what, what is blocking one pot from the, from the heat from the other. It's, as I mentioned already, it's too easy to fire too fast in an electric kiln. So allow enough time for things to happen. Don't fire by temperature alone. And this is especially true for, for, for these electronic controllers. You should still be using cones with an electronic controller because th- even though there's no way that that electronic c- controller can anticipate the spacing of your shelves or the thickness of your pots or how many pots you put on the shelf, you still need, which is going to affect the temperature that the pots see. So you still need to use cones. I mentioned already you want to vent the kiln and you want to vent the room. Um, With barrel kilns, insulating fire bricks are not strong. You should never put anything on top of a barrel kiln on that lid. It's too easy to crack the bricks with any kind of weight. So you never put anything on top of a barrel kiln. I mentioned vacuuming out the element grooves. That's a really simple maintenance thing. Um, When you're chipping glaze off a shelf, if you have to chip it off with a chisel, you always chip toward the center of the shelf. Regardless of where it sounds weird, but if this is a shelf and if I've got a glaze drip here, I would never chip it with a chisel that way, because I'm gonna break off the edge. I always chip toward the center if I'm chipping the glaze chips, I always chip toward the center of the shelf. Because that way you're pushing on the shelf. Ceramics are very weak when you try to pull them. So if I hit this way, there's a good chance I'm gonna knock the corner off the shelf. So I always even if the, even if it's down here on the very corner, I'll chip toward the center of the shelf, so I don't break the shelf. Um, if you're doing any repairs on the kiln, disconnect the, the power. Throw the, this is why you want a breaker. Or if you don't have a breaker, pull the plug, because things like like relays can stick. So imagine you know you say okay, I'm going to go work on the kiln, and the relay is stuck, and the power's still on to the elements. Um, I mentioned already do a break-in firing with new elements, where, you, where you, you you break in the elements by by a lot by forming the coating. Um, if you're, buying, if you're buying a front-loading box kiln, get a kiln that has elements all around. Don't be sucked in by the companies that sell them where they don't have elements on the door. Because there is, in spite of what they tell you, there is a definite effect of not having elements all the way around. There's a portion, we had, we had two kilns like this down at down at Vizart's in Rockville. And there's a whole, if you look down at the top of the kiln, from the top of the kiln, it was a square. If I look down from the top, and this is the door, there was an area that went like that that was considerably cooler than the whole rest of the kiln because there wasn't wasn't a set of elements on the door. So get, and there are some kilns I've seen in the British, they only have elements on the sides, nothing in the back, nothing in the front. Don't do it. Get ones, if you're gonna get a box kiln with a door, get one that has elements all the way around it. And the last thing is, if you're buying a used kiln, remember that there are two kind of power supplies that kilns are built for. 240 volt and 208 volt make if you're if you're buying a kiln for use at home Make sure you're getting a kiln that's good for 240 volt, which is what you have at home The other side of that is if you work in a school and somebody donates a kiln most schools are probably going to be on 208 volts and so if you get it and somebody donates a kiln um, They're gonna probably donate a kiln from the home studio, which is going to be 240 volts and so you, you, and, you, you said, and what you'll have to do if you want to make that, you have to replace the elements. So, you'll have to, it'll, so make sure if you're going to buy a used kiln that the power, it's rated for 240 volts or wherever whatever your system is, wherever you're going to be working. Because we had the problem at Hood. We had, somebody, we had somebody donate a 240 volt kiln to the school and we run on 208 and it never reached temperature. And it was simply the fact that it wasn't wired correctly. So we had to replace all the elements. Which was, it turns, so the free kiln cost us a lot of money. All right, everybody. Thank you for coming. I'm not sure what next month's topic is going to be, but it may be about firing defects. We'll let you know. Check our website. But thank you all for coming today. I hope it was useful.
0: The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.